Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. This episode, we feature a very special guest, Angela Barnes, a talented comedian known for her roles on Mock the Week and recently crowned Champions of Champions on House of Games. Angela will be hosting our upcoming charity quiz in support of the Kent and Medway Medical School here in Canterbury. Welcome. We wanted to chat about the fact that you are hosting a quiz for us. Um, yeah. The Kent and Medway Medical School. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, you know how much I love a quiz. So obviously I wasn't going to turn that down. I get to hang out with you guys and host a quiz. Come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's probably best that you are hosting the quiz because I've been on quiz teams with you and having recently seen you champion a champion on House of Games, <laughs> I don't think anyone would want to take you on. <laughs> See, I've got no one to play board games with me anymore. That's the, um, <laughs> It's so funny. That whole House of Games thing is so funny because I've never, uh, of all the telly or whatever I've done, I've never had so much stick as I've had for that. Really? Um, uh, on the other side of the coin is, obviously I had a lot more people being nice than anything else. And I've been recognised from House of Games more than any other thing I've ever done. So, I mean, that show is insanely popular. People love it. They properly love it. And because they love it, they get really angry if there's something they don't like, <laughs> someone oh, they really? don't like, or, or there's some, you know, it was, look, it's fair to say that first, <laughs> the first series of House of Games I did, a competition, they were, they were, lo- right, we had the best day. So they're all filmed in a day. The whole, look, peek behind the curtain, but the whole week's worth is filmed in one day. And the first week I did with um, it's Greg Rutherford, Melvin O'Doom and Denise Van Outen. We had the best day. We had so much fun. And they were, because it's just a silly telly program right at the end of the day. But mm. you've played board games with me. Yeah. You know, that's my one thing. Yeah. I'm like, let me have this. This is my football, right? This is my thing I'm good at. And I, I sometimes, I do have a little bit of a working class chip on my shoulder. So if there's something I'm good at, like, you know, I'm not going to pretend not to be just because people think I shouldn't. Do you know what I mean? So there was a lot of people on Twitter or whatever saying, you should have let the others have a chance. I'm like, no, that's not how games work, right? That's that's really patronising to them them. as well. If I go, I'll just sit back and let you, because then A, who do I think I am? And B, they don't want that. They don't want me to do that. Like we had such a fun day. And by the end of it, by that last episode, Mm. they were totally on my, they were totally like, come and see if you can get all fucked. You know, they were sort of. If you can demolish them. But it's weird because that's sort of competitive thing. People go, oh, are you really competitive? And I'm like, only in quizzes, really. And it's not even because I think people can confuse being competitive with being a bad loser. And I do not mind losing, like, as long as I've lost fairly. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, if somebody's beaten me fairly, mm. that's fine. Of course that's fine. Like, that's how games work, right? And it, if someone's cheated, forget it. Like, I can't, that makes me so angry. Why play a game if you're going to cheat? Why even bother? What's the point? Um, mm. You know, so yeah, I'm I'm, de- I'm, de- I'm not a bad loser. I I am with my husband maybe just because it's fun to be, but generally mm. I'm not a bad loser. But I, you know, play fairly. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. yeah, and it's just obviously so. You know, having watched you on it, it's just obviously so well matched to your skill set. You know, like so well matched to what you're you're kind of good at your niche. Well, I think there's a there's a, an ADHD element to this. I really believe I'm, I've been fairly recently diagnosed, fairly late diagnosed in life in my forties, and such a lot of things have suddenly made sense that didn't before. And I think one of them, oh, there was a moment. In, so the Champion of Champions one I did was with Aid Edmondson was on it, right? And he was at the start, he was like, 
I'm going to destroy you. Because <laughs> at that point, I'd only been, you know, I've been the only person who won five in a row. Still, as far as I know, still I'm the only person who's won all five. So it was a real sort of thing to him. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to show you who's, but you just had shit competition last time. But, you know, it was all very done very fun way and laughing, but he was like, I'm going to destroy you. And then he just sort of went after we recorded the first episode and I won it. Spoiler alert. But he then after he was like, how are you doing this? And he just said to me, how yeah. are you doing this? And I was like, look, this, this is the only thing that I'm Good. Like my brain focus on. has let me down my entire life for so many things, you know, emotionally, uh, mental health, with um, relationships, with all sorts of things. Having ADHD has not been a superpower. It's not. This is the one thing where I've gone, I can do this. Let me have it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Let me have it. It's fine. It's just a game, but it's just, there's a thing um, called hyperlinking with ADHD. They say people with ADHD are able to, you know, if you give them two subjects or you give them, th- they're very quick to find connections between things, mm. which is also why I think most comedians have ADHD. And I believe that. Yeah. I, I was about to say, did I, did we chat about that? The master and his emissary book. Cause I've got another friend. I know you said, don't, don't introduce your friends that have got ADHD. You're not like <laughs> in an ADHD club. It's too much admin. I was chatting to another friend about this and I think I've got elements of that. I feel sometimes this stuff, it's a bit like going, oh, oh autism's a spectrum and, and stuff like that. When, when it's like going out to someone who's blind and going, uh, oh, I'm, I've got sight problems too. Yes. I need glasses. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, there, I, yeah, yeah, there are grades of this stuff, but there are, there are mm. some people who are down one end and it is, it is a different, it is a different mm. kettle of fish. There's definitely people who think very uh, holistically. Mm. And the, and it's about making connections between things, and I've I've always done that, and I actually find it really hard to think about specifics. So I remember saying to someone once, mm. "I want I want a watch that doesn't tell me the time exactly. I just want to know roughly <laughs> what the time is." <laughs> yeah, I do. I want to I want a watch that is basically reliably inaccurate, so that I know I know roughly what because actually to know specifically what the time is is something I dislike. That's really interesting. Is that weird, isn't it? No, but but this is where... It's probably not weird to you, but weird to most people. It's it's not weird to me, but I wouldn't want that. So I'm very opposite in that I want to know exactly what the time is and exactly what's happening. But this is where the brain is so interesting and where something like ADHD is so interesting and where sometimes the word spectrum, I think, can be misleading. So autism manifests in different ways, as does ADHD, as does any sort of neurodivergence as the sort of phrases. And I think what's very, particularly somebody who is neurotypical for want of a better word, doesn't have these different brain structures that anything up to 20% of the population probably do have. I mean, they don't really know, but they think it could be anything up to 20% of the population aren't neurotypical. And that by which I mean the actual physical structure of their brain is different. It's not a feeling. It's not a, you know, it's a difference. And what I think people who are neurotypical want is a, how do I tell what it's like to be like that? How do I tell, you know, how do I behave with someone who's like that? How do I treat someone who's like that? And the problem with that is that it's such, it manifests in such individual ways because the way it manifests in you has to do with your own past, your own upbringing, your own way it's been dealt with in your own life, you know. So there's no sort of one size fits all. And that's where I think the spectrum, we 
we say, well, you've either got it really badly or you've got it really... And, and there isn't really that. The structure is different. What uh, manifests differently in different people is how it affects their functioning. So a lot of the problems associated with, say, ADHD, like the smashing up the room or whatever, that, that was very much... That was research early on was very much done on young boys, not, which is why it, it presents very differently in young boys and why people still think today ADHD, that's what it is. It's young boys throwing chairs across the classroom because they can't sit still. You know, that's mm-hmm. what people think it is. But that manifestation isn't the ADHD doing that. It's the frustration of having ADHD in a neurotypical world that's causing that behavior, right? So it's not necessarily that he's got it worse than you or it manifests differently Mm. because his frustrations are different for whatever reason. And the way he deals with his frustrations are different. And so it's why you can't go, well, somebody with ADHD, somebody with autism behaves like this because just because you have ADHD or autism doesn't mean you don't imprint your own personality onto how you deal with that and how you function in the world. So, um, you know, there's so many things that play in the brain, such a complex organ, as we know, that uh, that Mm. isn't fully understood. But what we do know is that the reason diagnosis is happening a lot now, and it's very easy for people to go, oh God, everyone's being, I've had it leveled at me. Everyone thinks Mm. they've got ADHD now. And you go, no, these people have always had ADHD, Like, there's always been that percentage of people with a different structured brain in the same Mm. way. There's always been that percentage of people who are left-handed, right? And in the past, people who are left-handed had their hands tied behind their back to make them quote unquote normal. Right. But now Mm. we know that left-handed people exist and that's a thing. And, but what it doesn't mean for people who are left-handed, the world hasn't changed to accommodate that the world is still essentially right-handed, right? set up Mm. for right-handed people, but Mm. left-handed people, because they know they're left-handed, they know how to adapt. And that's what diagnosis means for people is, okay, the world is not going to miraculously change overnight to accommodate the 20% of us that are different. It's going to, you know, because society has to function as a society, it has to function for the majority. Mm. But the knowledge that you're in that 20% that isn't the same means that you can adapt to the world more easily. Because you're yeah. not just constantly frustrated by it. Because you have no way of knowing that the way you think is different to anyone else, right? So as I was growing up, I was treated for many years, as you guys know, for depression, mental illness, all sorts of things. But now I know were simply a frustration at not being able to meet these sort of arbitrary life goals and or seemingly to mm. me arbitrary, certainly, things that other people could do with ease, right? Not being yeah. able to stay in the same job forever, not being able to, you know, understanding why mm. I had this need to please everybody all the time or to get praise all the time. Now I know that was a dopamine search, right? That's what I understand that. But when you don't know that that's what's happening, the only word I ever had for it was that I was somehow just a failure at being like everyone else. I, mm. I, you know, other people were able to be happy in their jobs. Other people were able to hold down relationships. Other people were able to um, get things done in a way I just wasn't. And at school, I'd been quite a high achiever. At school, I'd, um, you know, came top of the class and was had all this potential. But the minute I left school and that sort of complete support had gone, because at school you are handheld through everything, you know, the minute that had gone and it all just fell apart and no one knew why. And because I'd had all this potential and she's going to be successful and suddenly I wasn't, what else, what other word for it is than failure. Now I know what it actually was, was I was trying to, and my friend put it 
everyone's in a running race, right? And people who are neurodivergent are trying to run that race in flippers, whereas everyone else has trainers on, but they don't know that they've got flippers on and everyone else. So they can't understand why everyone's running faster than them and they can't keep up. Mm. And it's because you've been given tools for a different job, you know, but you're trying to fit into a world that isn't set up for you. It's set up for the majority of people, but your brain is different and it's not set up for you. That's how I feel about it. I feel like, um, you know, I brought up that thing about kind of like the spectrum thing because it does seem like mm. a different manifestation. I don't want to come along and go... Well, the manifestations are different and the frustrations are different and the way you deal with it is different. But it, there's definitely... I definitely see the world similarly to... to I recognise ways that you behave that are similar mm. to me. They're just like silly things like, oh, do you want a cup of tea, dear? And, like, and then like... Where's that tea gun? And we we have this phrase all the time. She like I go to friend. Do you want a cup of tea? And then she go. Was that an ADHD cup of tea that you <laughs> offered me twenty minutes ago? Just I've got no sense of time because time Ooh. is time to me is this um it's in blocks. It's not how my brain works. It works holistically, and I can't I can't fathom things that are in segments. And it's actually it's all physically painful to me for things to be compartmentalized. Like if yeah. someone says to me, if they show me a calendar or a diary, which is ironic because we build rostering systems <laughs> <laughs> and it's all about compartmentalizing. But that's again, the sort of where we live in is it lends itself to that right-handed world of reductionism and compartmentalization and, mm-hmm. and, and just having, and believing everything can be reduced down to its uh, constituent parts. I just, I just don't think it, it can. And that's why that book, um, The Master and His Emissary, which is about how the brain works. And, mm. and I'd, you, you'd love it, Angela, honestly. I've written it down. It's brilliant because it basically makes the case that you, you know, each half of your brain is basically competing with each other. And one of them is around topics and structures and compartmentalization. And the other one is about uh, looking at things holistically. And apparently mm. if you have lesions in your brain, I, can't remember, I think it's um, if you have a lesion in your left-hand brain and you ask someone to draw like a stick man, they'll remember where all they'll remember all the constituent parts. They'll remember it's got a hand and it's got an arm and leg and stuff like that, and it'll draw them and it'll draw them all in detail. Um, but if you've got a right brain lesion, you can't think of it holistically. So what you'll do is you'll draw it with all of the all of the pieces correctly drawn, but in the wrong place. So you'll stick like mm. your your arms at the bottom and the head will be on the left-hand side. And like, you can't think how it all sits together as one piece. And funnily enough, if you have a lesion the other way around, then when you try to draw that thing, you will draw a stick man and everything will be roughly in the right place, but you might forget how many fingers there are on your hand. And it, it's that thing between sort of knowing the constituent parts of something and seeing something as a, whole. as a whole. And I, I've always thought that, um, entrepreneurs, I feel like my, both myself and you have uh, found worlds where it actually plays to those strengths. Yeah. And comedy is definitely somewhere where, where it's broad context. You, you're thinking about all of these different things in different places and then bringing them together in, into yeah. one place and pointing at it and going, isn't that funny? And, yeah. and entrepreneurs all, also have to think uh, holistically about their organization. They can't think yeah. about this, you know, the detail and the specific. That sort of day-to-day intricacy isn't what makes yeah. things happen. It's, it's so fascinating. I mean, the whole 
obviously the way the brain works is so bad and, and so much is known, but so much more isn't. And I remember I worked for a little while on a stroke rehab unit and it was just fascinating to see how strokes affect people so differently depending on where in the brain it's happened you know and I've worked with people who um they have sort of a hemisphere neglect it was called then I don't so for example if the stroke happened in the right side of your brain I think it's the left side that's affected you know so you Mm, might lose and uh, part of my job was to support people with rehab so getting used to you know dressing themselves again washing themselves again you know starting again a bit and quite often you would have people who um if you left out clothes for them say say right do you want to get dressed if they had a certain the stroke had occurred in a certain part of their brain they would have such neglect of the opposite side of their body that it was like it didn't exist so you'd come in and they'd only have dressed half their body and they think mm. they were dressed because it's just things like that the brain is such a delicate organ so of course it behaves, and and I think we're so as human beings, we think we're very empathetic, but we're very empathetic to people who behave the same way as us. I think mm. who react in the same way, and you see it all the time. You see it, you know, for example, um, in awful situations like where a woman is maybe is in a domestic abuse situation. You go, well, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she leave? Why didn't she? Because we imprint on that what we think we would do in that situation. Yet, you know, everybody's reaction to everything is different, and also. It's not just how your brain is structured that makes you react, but your life experience, your, you know, what's happened to you and everything that you bring to the table means that we're so idiosyncratic that it's almost insane to try and work out what someone else might do in any given situation. And the the thing about um, time is really interesting. Somebody sent me this and I, it's a little bit mad, um, but it's a, a woman uh, called Marta Rose, who I think she's a an artist. I don't really know enough to say who she is or what she... Somebody sent me this link and it was just about this sort of concept of time that we have that is very linear for most people. And that progress is always goes forward and that there's always a point in time in the future where something will have happened. And for a lot of people with ADHD and autism, it's very hard to know when something will be complete by which I mean to, um, so I get very easily overwhelmed if I've got something in the future that has to be done that can stop me doing anything between now and that point that that has to be done because I can't see that end point. It's really hard to explain Mm. when you don't, your brain doesn't work that way. And that's where something called executive dysfunction comes in, which is um, for someone, which was my sort of main problem, if you like, with ADHD in, in that the thing that impacts my life negatively the most is that I can have a task that I need to do and it can be a task that I want to do, that I have time to do, and that I'm able to do. Right. So those three things should make that task easy. But for some reason, I'm not doing it. And the narrative is always, if you're not doing something you should be doing, then you must be lazy. Right? You're lazy and you don't care. Now, somebody who's lazy and doesn't care, and there are people who are lazy and don't care about things, they are not spending that time, they should be doing that task, making themselves ill about it. Right. They might be watching telly or doing something more fun. Whereas I will spend that time having panic attacks, getting anxious. And the answer is always just do it then. Why, why aren't you just doing it then? But mm. some, there's a block, there's a paralysis. And a lot of it is to do with, I think, the way that I, I function better with short 
tasks that I can just do. And if something's going to take time, then everything else falls by the wayside. And uh, that will, consi- I will still leave it to the last minute to do it though. And that's been the story of my life. And I, I thought it was just because I was lazy and stupid. And then I realized that lazy people don't get themselves in a state. Last year, I ended up um, in A&E. Like I, I collapsed with chest pains and stuff. And they did a, an ECG and I had like a heart arrhythmia and all sorts. And it was just stress because of a project I was working on that I then had to walk away from. And I, you feel like a failure walking away from a project, but sometimes mm. you have to go, hang on a minute. And it got to the point where the editor, who I think you know, is a, somebody you know in Whitstable, mm. he had to sit me down and say, a book shouldn't make you this ill. Like it is not mm. paying you enough to make you this ill. And it is clear that something else is going on here and you need to walk away from it. And I was like, I cannot walk away from it because that is a failure. And I can't have a failure. And she's like, it's a failure to make yourself ill doing something that you can't do or that you don't. Mm. It's not even that you can't do. It's that clearly there's a problem. How good that uh, she had that. She's brilliant. Yeah. Well, she's autistic, you see. So she saw it all in me. She saw mm. it all and understood it. But somebody the the you know who isn't autistic would interpret that, that I was too lazy to write that book or that I was. But what they don't see is me ending up in A&E because I got such a state about it. You know, that's not what a lazy mm. person does. No. <laughs> that's what something else is going on. And that's what executive dysfunction is. But this whole idea of time is really interesting. And um, I'll send you this link that someone sent me about how for somebody with neurodivergence, sometimes time just isn't this linear mm. thing, you know, and that actually it's really hard to explain, but it made so much sense to me when I watched it. I feel like I'm being diagnosed. <laughs> Am I being diagnosed I, I on mean, the podcast? No. I, I do not have the authority, Kevin, to diagnose anybody, but I, you know, I, I say this to my husband all the time because he's clearly neurodivergent and he knows he is, but he doesn't feel the need for mm. a diagnosis because he's, again, it's about function. If you're functioning okay and you're happy, great. Mm. You know, yeah. but if you're not happy and there's other things going on, you know, I spent 30 years pretty much on antidepressants. That's not fun. Well, that's the thing is what concerns me is that there's like another alternative uh, universe version of me where I didn't find a job where mm. that oh. actually suited my strengths. And the same for you. Do you do mm. you, do you carry on as a nurse and then you live in a, a world where it's like, have you done this? And the drug round, this form needs to be filled out. And it's like, uh, like, and it just doesn't suit you, and it makes you feel ill. And we had a conversation, didn't we, about it? When, mm. cause we we think in, we're pretty sure our son has got ADHD, and I think oh, if yeah, I mentioned yeah. this to you, uh, Angela, when you got your diagnosis, because mm. it was at the same time as we were looking at having him assessed, and we were kind of like, well, do we do this? Because does he need? How useful will it be for him at the moment where he is managing his life to have? to have this diagnosis um, versus what, you know, what potential trauma or headache there is to get through that process, particularly kind of navigating the, mm. uh, the diagnosis progress uh, process. Um, and we made, and we, ta- we talked a lot to his teachers and stuff and they said it is definitely worth for the future getting this so that he can understand. Unfortunately, yeah. NHS is completely overwhelmed with. Uh, and it doesn't exhibit, as you were saying, it doesn't exhibit any behavioral problems, you know. No, nor did I. Nor mm. did I. And, and part of the. Okay, so my thoughts on this, and I thought about it a lot. I know there's a real, particularly among neurotypical people, there's a real concern about labeling, 
right? And I, I, I totally mm. understand that, that you go, once a child has a label, you know, it, is that a bad thing? Is that something that then marks them out as different to their peers or, you know, puts them in a category that too young? And, and I totally get the concerns of that. Yeah, I mean, we come on to the, word dis- the, the words that I think are a problem and there's a few words that are a problem that are used. And again, remember, most of the research is done by neurotypical people and most of the things that have been written about it are by neurotypical people, not necessarily. Mm. And what's really nice at the moment is that neurodivergent people particularly through social media, are getting hold of the narrative themselves and going, don't call us this. Don't let us decide how we want to be described and how we want to be. Mm. But I think certainly from obviously growing up when I did in, you know, being at primary school in the 80s or whatever, ADHD wasn't recognised in girls at all, unless it was that small percentage of girls who um, had the type of ADHD where they would lash out, right? Or who had that sort of, that behavioural instinct to lash out. Because if you're disruptive in a classroom, something has to be done, right? You can't have that Mm. in a class of 30 people. Something has to be done and so is done. However, for most women with ADHD and a percentage of boys with ADHD, the manifestation is much more internal. And so the only disruption I ever caused to anyone was to me. Right. Yeah. And it was really, and I was a very anxious child and it used to be quite a laughing point, you know, that, oh, she's a warrior. She worries about everything. But actually I was making myself sick. You know, I was really, because that whole process was internalized. Had I got a diagnosis then to understand that about myself, okay, when you're a kid, you just want to be like everyone else. But I knew I wasn't, you know, by, by not labeling a child doesn't stop the child having the thing. Right. And the world isn't set up as we've said for people with the thing. And so just to have some understanding or to know that, okay, I'm different is hugely important because you've then got a reason for your behavior, right? You're not just a weird one. You're not overreacting. You're not oversensitive. You're not, your brain is literally structured differently. And it's good to know that if you can't do sport because you're in a wheelchair, say, you know, and so there's certain sports you can't play at school. Everyone understands why. Right. And, and that you're not going, Oh, I'm worried about labeling this person because it, their label's obvious, but for somebody with, an invisible condition or, you know, something that isn't necessarily obvious. I think labelling helps more than it hinders. And I can see the hindrance and I can see the concern about it. And there are problems with language that's used, which I hope is changing, you know, that it's a dysfunction or that it's rather than just, it's just a way of being that's different. Um, But I, I have more concern about the kids that are not diagnosed and how that will manifest later than I do about the kids that are diagnosed and are getting the help from the off. Um, so, you know, I understand why parents worry about labeling their children, but also if, if as a parent, you're, you don't have these issues, you're not neurotypical, you know, it's very difficult to not put your neurotypical way of thinking onto that child and go, well, I wouldn't want to be labeled. So therefore, whereas actually I think particularly now as people are really, um, proclaiming their difference and going, you know, it's not a disorder. It's just the way I am and stop medicalizing it. Stop making it a dysfunction when it's just a different function or different way of functioning. And actually, um, you know, my contribution to society 
might be different to yours, but they're just as valuable and sometimes more so. And uh, really, I, I've been involved quite a lot with the ADHD Foundation and doing stuff with them. And even though, you know, I've only been diagnosed for a year, because I've got a slight platform, because I do a bit of telly or whatever, I have spoken about it openly because there aren't many women who are, um, who have that sort of platform. And I think it's just really important because I wish I'd had that when I was younger, you know, to, to go, oh, hang on a minute. Um, and so I have got involved with like the ADHD foundation and stuff. And a, a really interesting thing they pointed out about our education system is obviously our education system still has a lot of elements from when it was developed in the Victorian times, you know, the, the school day, the way it's structured. Um, and although we now have, you know, special ed educational needs, people and, and more support, the actual structure of learning hasn't changed all that much. And we know because of the way that we learn that we have different needs and to sit in a classroom for an hour with a thing doesn't necessarily work for us, you know, or exams in the way they are don't necessarily work for all neurodivergent people. So, but what's really interesting is the top businesses in the world at the moment, your Amazons, your Googles, your SpaceX, whatever, full of neurodivergent people, you know, mm. um, full of people who work in a different way. And like you say, entrepreneurs and whatever. So it's how do we get the government to see that what the most successful, if you like, if you count success as, you know, being a billionaire or whatever, but what the seemingly most successful people in the world have realized, why can't we, our education system also realize that? And, and rather than trying to squeeze people into that system, surely the system needs to change to accommodate everybody. That's not an easy job. And, all comes down to money, obviously, and time and, and lots of things. To call it a dysfunction is a problem. To call it, and that's why I don't like ADHD as a term has a lot of problems, not least of which is the H, because I think that's why a lot of people go undiagnosed. Why I went undiagnosed for longer than I should have done, because it had been pointed out to me years ago that I might have ADHD. And I was like, don't be stupid, I'm not hyperactive. Mm. And then I realized, as a psychiatrist explains to me, that the H in hyperactivity can be internal and that actually my brain is like, a laptop with all the tabs open all the time. You know, that's what the hyperactivity is. And that I can't, that I flip from thing to thing in my brain, which serves me very well as a comedian because that's where that hyperlinking comes. But, you know, if I'm trying to fit into a inverted commas normal job, that's a hindrance, mm -hmm. right? And if I'm trying to do things that the world expects of me, that can be a hindrance to have that internal hyperactivity. And I didn't realize because you don't know how anyone else thinks, you assume everyone thinks the same way as you do, that my brain fills every gap, be it with counting or random song lyrics or whatever. So if I'm walking down the street, you know, seemingly not really thinking about much, my brain starts counting, counting my steps obsessively or doing these things that I just thought everyone did. And I didn't realize it was just this constant hyperactivity in my brain. You know, that when you're trying to go to sleep and your brain just won't switch off, um, you know, that's the hyperactivity. So that's one of the problems with ADHD as a, and then of course, disorder is the other problematic word, I think, because you go, am I disordered or is the world just not set up for me? Well, they're two different things, aren't they? Because if, as might be suggested, up to 20% of the population might be neurodivergent or not typical, you know, in their, in their brain, then is it a disorder or is it, that society has 
made it hard for them. So the disorder in that sort of social disability model where you go, is somebody disabled or does the world make them disabled? You know, are you disabled by being in a wheelchair or does the will, the world makes you disabled because it's not set up for you in your wheelchair, you know, and access and stuff isn't uh, given to you. Well, that's not your fault. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So There's a lot of problems, I think, with the terminology and and why the labelling people are frightened of it. Because if I label my child as disordered, that's a negative statement, right? Rather than going, hey, you're in the 20% of people who think this way, in the way that you don't worry about labelling a child who's left-handed or labelling a child who, you know, has something physically different about them. I don't think even just, not just the disorder part, but just the idea that it's an individual problem. Like if you're left-handed, say, like I wouldn't have any problem with someone saying left-handed, but you don't, um, as an organization, it's not to your detriment that some of you are left-handed and, you you know, you're getting some left-handed scissors or whatever, you know, you need to accommodate someone who's left-handed. But actually, I feel like organizations miss out on it as a real strength like mm. uh, when when i work with the nhs there's such a there's such a focus on goals and reductionism and in, in everything in in mm. how we construct our technical systems it's like well this thing must have this 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 and this it's like very broken down it's very reductionist very mechanical and there's very little thought for holistic thinking and and the trouble is, it's really hard to say that without sounding really woolly, because it it sounds woolly. It sounds mm. like, oh, don't worry about the detail. Let's just let's just I don't know. And it is an I don't know because it's so cloudy. It's such a concept. And I uh, I hit this barrier. I would never have succeeded in a big organisation because the way to the top is through managerial success, and that requires good executive function to be like. Okay, you go here, you go here, blah, blah, blah. And consequently, much of the top brass in, in large organizations come from the man- from good managers. And I was saying to Fran the other day, like I was looking at Zelensky, right, with the Ukrainian stuff. And mm. I was like, he's, he's, he's demonstrating good leadership but from a holistic sense that he's like, this is our culture. This is what we're going to be about. He's what he's not doing is individually directing tanks and, mm. mil, you know, he's not like you go here and you go here. That's not good leadership. Like telling no. people exactly where to go. It's looking at it as a whole picture. And guess where he's come from? Comedy. Comedy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's yep. a comedian. And he's come from that world of seeing it as a bigger picture. Not like, how do we get, they are doing really well on the propaganda war. Partly because mm. he's got, a, he has an appreciation of the importance of of, of the aesthetic, mm. and of, of messaging, what, what it and of like, yeah. messaging how people yeah. how people perceive that conflict, mm. and you know, someone else who who come from a reductionist world, from a managerial world, might be like, we need more tanks, we need more yeah. aircraft, you know, we need a SAM site here, and blah blah blah, and it's like very specific about the attributes. Someone who comes from that world, from comedy, will go. Actually, I need to see this in a in a broader picture of what, what's possible. And also, I think when you zoom out, when you look at the broader picture, you can see more where the chinks are, right? Where the problems are. Because when you're zoomed in, always on process, you'll see your bit of the process, right? And so this is my job. This is my bit of the process. As long as I'm doing that and everything. 
everyone else is doing their bit, it should all work. Whereas when you zoom out, you can see where the weaknesses are and you can see the bit. And I found what I found very frustrating about working in organisations and why, you know, obviously I love the NHS and I, I'm very fond of it as a, but I also know that, you know, trying to make change within an organisation like the NHS is like trying to turn an oil tanker. You know, you can't do anything spontaneous because there's so many different elements that aren't linked together properly. You know, you've got all these cogs, but none of them are zooming out and going, okay, well, if I change that, then that will change. Then You know, and like you say, seeing the bigger picture. And to fight against that is so hard when, and also you have people are institutionalised in organisations and it's that, you know, you're constantly fighting against, but we do it this way as a reason mm. for doing something. And, you know, in every job I've ever had, however small the organisation really is, but but we do it this way. And you go, well, can we maybe do it this way? It might be better. You know, people are very resistant to change, as you know, mm. very resistant. Whereas I think somebody, um, you know, I, I know one of the things people think about people who are autistic is that they're resistant to change, right? And, and, and certainly kind of in daily routine, somebody who's autistic might struggle with spontaneity or, th- but I think actually they are able to see it because there's something in their brain that tells them that this way is more efficient and just better. Why would you do it the way you're doing it? And what's seen as being awkward or difficult is actually, no, they've just seen a better way and you're refusing to, you know, mm. because in society for most people, the way we've always done it is just the way we do it. And, and for somebody who has autism, for example, and I'm not autistic, so I'm saying this, you know, not as an expert in autism, but I think there's a real difficulty when something isn't logical to do it that way. And mm. and when something isn't, you know, in the same way, so many people who are neurotypical don't say what they mean, you know, and of course that leads to confusion and frustration among people who are neurodivergent go, why do you say you're fine when you're not fine? And then I'm supposed to react like you're not fine, you know, and when you actually break it down, you go, yeah, that is mad that we do that as a society, mm. that we say one thing and mean another. And there's supposed to be little tiny nuances in our face that tell you that we don't mean what we're saying. Um, mm. And I think it's that same. And, and the, the the whole thing with comedy, I mean, we've talked about this before and I genuinely think that, and this might sound a bit bleak, but you know as, that I, you know, have had some, ended up in hospital with depression, all sorts of things. Really, and I, Genuinely don't think if I hadn't stumbled into stand-up comedy the way I did 12, 13 years ago, I'm not sure I'd still be here. I'm really not. Um, because the, the, that I was just never happy. And that frustration, no. that daily grind, that we sort of... We knew you before you were famous. You did. <laughs> and you weren't in a good place before you found no, comedy. No, yeah. no, no. And, and I thank, you know, God, Allah, whoever, you know, I need to thank that... I stumbled into this life that suits me. I couldn't imagine being happy when I was in my twenties. I was like, Oh, this is just, a, and that's what I was told. I have persistent depressive disorder. So this is just going to be the way it's going to be. You're going to have to take tablets for the rest of your life. Mm. And it's just the way it's going to be. You're one of the miserable ones. Right. And I think that's so gender comes into this a little bit as well. I think historically uh, women have been treated more for depression without looking for alternative causes for it it's just oh women they're a bit moody aren't they given the drugs you know (laughs) that has definitely come into it um and I even recently so I I again very luckily for me I was able to go private for my diagnosis right I was able to afford it and whatever you, you know your thoughts are about that 
the fact is I live in Brighton where there is a three year waiting list for assessment and I just couldn't wait. And because I could afford it, I went private. For me, once it was sort of explained to me what ADHD was and how it manifests in women, everything just made sense. Right. And this job that I'd found, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times as a comedian, I get somebody say to me, I couldn't do what you do. Right. And invariably it'd be somebody who works in an office every day. And I think to myself, and I don't say it, I was like, well, if I did what you do, I'd kill myself. Like, you know, that's, mm. it's horses for courses, right? And the thing about my job that I think is quite, inj- is we know that people with ADHD are the biggest issue, if you like, is in processing how we process dopamine and that we're not able to hang on to it like somebody who is neurotypical can. And so we're constantly looking for that hit. So stand-up comedy is an instant dopamine hit, right? There's no, you know, you get on stage and they either laugh or they don't. And either way, you're getting a dopamine hit one way or the other. Mm. Um, and, and it's instant and it's in that moment. And also, um, one of the things I found impossible in my life was routine to the point where it was visceral, my reaction against it, to get the same train to work every day, to the same place with the same people every day, to, you know, buy your lunch in the same place or whatever. And I couldn't understand. Hell for me. Yeah, mm. I couldn't understand how people were okay with that. You know, and that were it was a good thing to stay in the same job for. Two. So I would change jobs all the time. Now I never got sacked from a job because one of my uh, sort of manifestations, if you like, of ADHD is real uh, rejection sensitivity. So I want to please everybody. I don't want to upset anyone. And so what would happen is I would get to a point in a job where I'm like I'm getting ill by staying here, so I have to change jobs. So I would change jobs frequently. But that, what that means is when you change jobs all the time, you're never moving up. You're only ever moving sideways, right? Because you're not in a, one place long enough to get promoted. Or, so I was in this situation of never moving up a ladder, of just going sideways, 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 sometimes changing a job into something that was below where I was before, just because I just needed to change and that's all that was available. And so I wasn't making any progress in my life. I wasn't. And, and it was only when I found comedy, suddenly I was in a situation where I was in a different place every day with different people. I was in charge of my own progress at my own pace. There wasn't a boss going, I need this done by then, you know, and it just, it just filled all those gaps that I didn't know or hit all those needs that I didn't know I needed. And I couldn't explain to people why that was. Now I can, because I understand about ADHD and I understand about what was happening. But this job that everyone told me was so scary and frightening just made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing about, you know, always standing on a stage, talking to, you know, making strangers laugh or whatever. That's where I feel safest. I am much more comfortable. I always say this, when people come and see me at a show, right? They'll see me do the show and and my onstage persona is quite sort of confident and, uh, you know, because on a stage I am confident. Then they'll meet me after the show. You know, I'll, I'll sort of bump into them in the bar or whatever after the show. And they'll be like, oh, I love the show. And then I'm a timid mess because I'm suddenly having to have a one-to-one with someone I don't know. And that to me is the scariest thing in the world, you know, Mm. just to be in a group of people I don't know. And because that's when, as somebody who's neurodivergent, the problems we have, and this would be very evident from anyone listening to the podcast now, is that, you know, taking turns is hard. I know I talk too much, you know. So when I'm in a social situation, I'm worrying, have I said too much? Have I not said enough? Do they think I'm weird? We had 10 minutes set aside to do the ADHD discussion. (laughs) It's a lovely ADHD podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. And and that's the thing about being on stage with a microphone in my hand. I know it is always my turn to talk. You know, there's no expectation Mm. that someone's got to reply, that I've got to give them time to speak, that I've got to let them say what they want to say. 
it's easy. There's none of that social stuff to worry about. And so for somebody like me, I know to a lot of people, it feels like the worst thing in the world to get up on stage and do that. Mm. To me, that makes more sense or, or not even that it makes more, it's just easier. There's less mm. of that, those, uh, that other stuff to worry about, the stuff that I find hard. I don't have to worry about that on a stage. <laughs> I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, I think there's something about like chucking um, words out there and having, uh, and actually saying these things that helps you um, comprehend it in that holistic sense. Like you, mm. where, where I, that's, that's why I find I talk a lot and I talk in incomplete sentences because it starts coming out of my mouth and then I'm like, ah, okay, now I understand how these things are connected. But until I've said them, until they've got out of my body, it's like they can get back reabsorbed into the other, the other side of the brain. What's your handwriting like, Kevin? Uh, Is it bad? Like yeah. Kevin Fran's face just said it. Because I, when I was a kid, I used to get told off for my handwriting all the time. All the time it was bad. And I can remember a teacher saying, it's like your hand can't keep up with your brain. Like when you're trying to write stuff, you know, and, and so it's just a mess. And it's like that to this I'm day. I'm not in position to cast judgment on people's handwriting, though, because actually I have to say my handwriting is absolutely awful. See, I just imagine, Fran, that yours oh, would no, be delicate it's awful. No, actually, it's terrible. And I can't write cursively. And I never have been able to. I've always written in just solid letters. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, well, why do I need to write cursively? I don't need to. But it, I mean, I look with envy at beautiful handwriting, particularly mm. when I've got friends who are very artistic and, you know, you can see, you know, I'm not saying all artistic people have beautiful handwriting, but I definitely think there is a correlation. And no, my writing, my handwriting is awful, although it's actually interesting because obviously all the time you've been talking, it's kind of been inferred that I'm the, the neurotypical person on this podcast. No, but actually some that, of the things, yeah. some of the things that you're that. saying, I'm kind of like, Oh, hang on a minute. Okay. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. One of us. One yeah. Of yeah. But that's the thing. It's really interesting the, how social media has really been helpful, uh, you know, it, for all its negatives of social media. Certainly, in a way of when people are talking about this stuff, you go, hang on a minute. And I know, you know, I mean, it's not my place to talk about anyone else's situation. So I won't mention her name, but there's a friend we have in common who has recently been diagnosed. And I know that she had read my posts on Facebook or whatever and gone, hang on a minute. Yes. You know, this mm. is all a bit. And and I, and I don't think, you know, those people who are seeing themselves represented on Facebook or on TikTok or whatever it is, and then getting a diagnosis, it's not like it hasn't, already been a seed planted in their minds, I think, you know, but it's just something, it's just when you see it represented to you, you go, oh, hang on a minute. Well, if this person mm. has it, then I, and, and the, the opposite side of that is obviously there are lots of traits associated with ADHD. And when somebody doesn't have ADHD, there's a real inclination, I think, there's an inclination to worry about people being misdiagnosed and to worry about people being overdiagnosed, you know, and I hear that a lot. I mean, oh, everyone's getting diagnosed. It's like, well, you know what? Don't, if you've not got ADHD and you're okay, don't worry about us, you know, whether we're diagnosed or not, don't let it worry you because it doesn't impact your life. If diagnosis helps, great. And I think what they do, because they see, you know, I might post something about like, you know, I've lost my keys again or whatever. And they go, oh, everyone loses their car keys. Go, yes. Everyone loses their car keys. Does everyone lose their car keys? a minimum of twice a day, every single day mm. to the point where it upsets I me. I remember when the, the issue, when I was a kid, uh, I was like, Tina, when I was about 18, 19, the bank 
I had a problem with my bank card because I lost my bank card so many times that the issue number had gone over nine. <laughs> it started wrapping around. I wrote about this recently because I said, I remember when you had the issue number on the card. Yeah. I remember for an account I had less than 10 years. My, it was in the 20s. Maybe that's probably one of the best diagnostic tools for ADHD. Yeah. Did you have issue numbers that went over nine when you yeah. were 18 years old? But, you know, that's the thing. It, it's not everyone does these things occasionally, but it's when it impacts mm. on your life negatively to the point where, you know, even though I now know I have ADHD and I know these things happen, I get frustrated every single day. I cannot remember the last time I left the house without having to come back in for something I've forgotten, right? There's always something. I I mean, my catchphrase around the house, house is, where's my phone? Matt bought me one of those tiles, you know, to attach to the phone so that I can with my mm. keys you but then I need to know where my keys are so it doesn't always you know yeah. there's this just sort of and what it is I think our brains are so noisy all the time and, and people say oh why don't you just have a place where you put your keys you go do you think I don't have a place where my keys should be I do have a place where my keys should be but what happens is somewhere between getting to my, through my front door and to the place where my keys should be my brain is thinking about something else it's taken my coat off and it's put my keys down without me even realizing I've done it yeah you know, it's not, it's, it, I once lost a, I had like a little backpack and I got, I've gone out and I got home and it just wasn't on my back anymore, mm. you know? And it's things like that. You just don't, your brain is so busy with other noise that it's like you're doing things without knowing you're doing them. You're And you, the whole making a cup of tea thing, I can go, right, I'm making tea, I'm making coffee, whatever. And I'll get halfway through the process. And then it it is that distraction. You go, oh, I've just, I've got, I've just remembered that email and I'm going to have to send it now before I forget. And then that's it. That coffee's done. You know, it's half made in the kitchen and that's where it's going to stay. The, the amount of times, Matt, every time he opens the microwave, there'll be a cup of tea in there that I've put in to heat up. Or, um, you know, I've mm. got those like wheat bag things instead of hot water bottles. Every time he opens it, there's one in there because I've mm. gone, oh, I'll heat that up and then just forgotten about it. Um, you know, and it's, it's when these things happen constantly, Mm. And it impairs your function and it frustrates everyone around you. When I was a kid, I can remember my mum and dad getting so angry with me for losing things all the time. And they thought I was just careless and these things didn't mean anything to me. And I would lose things that really meant something to me. And it really upset me. And it's like, it's not that I don't care and I'm ungrateful or I'm, you know, I don't know why this keeps happening. Mm. And, and, you know, there's a sense that you must just be careless or you, you're, you know, thoughtless or you don't care that somebody's given you that thing and you've lost it how could you that's really you know disrespectful or uh i remember say when i um had my assessment and it was before just before i got married but obviously i had my engagement and i said to him i i can't believe i've still got my engagement ring mm-hmm. you know because i lose jewelry all the time and when my engagement ring and wedding ring they i do not take them off they don't ever take them off because that'll be it. Once I get into the habit of, you know, playing with them or take it, that's it. They're gone. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, I suppose the positive of that is I've learned over my life not to get attached to material stuff because. You'll lose it. I will lose it. Lose it. Yeah. <laughs> I will lose it. I was going to smugly say my life has changed since I have the, this string in my handbag that my keys click on. Mm. Um, so that, they never they should never really leave that. So I've got a big handbag. So as long as I don't lose my handbag, then I've got my keys. Look. Are the keys on it? They're not on there. This is exactly it. People <laughs> go, oh, do this, do that. And you're like, yeah, but I won't, I won't attach my keys to that because I won't be mm. thinking about it. When I leave the house, my keys go in my pocket or in my bag. I'm not f- thinking about what I'm doing. And then I'll be going, where are my keys? Because I don't remember where I've 
yeah. So a lots of the the things that are supposed to help us, you know, are great in theory, but they've obviously been designed by someone who doesn't have the best yeah. thing I've got. Where is it? This this is what. So to do lists are my thing, right? So I have this book is my and I, you know I go through them and it's just like a little empty notebook, but it's every day there's a to do list every day because. And I mean, we could talk about that as well, but I've also just started going through the menopause, which combined with ADHD is great for forgetting shit. So, you know, there's my to do list. But then I lose this, right? I leave this at home or I, and I found this thing is brilliant. This is a, I'm showing you it now on the Zoom, is a wearable to do list, right? Wow. That has an erasable pen and a uh, little rubber. You write your to do list on it and then you pop it on your wrist, slap it on. That's your wearable to-do list. So it's just with you all day. I need that. Seriously. Isn't it amazing? Just on Amazon. Just put wearable to-do list on Amazon. I need that. Great, isn't it? So it's just with you because I can write as many to-do lists as you like, but then I'll leave them at home and I'll go somewhere and go, oh, what was on that list? Yeah. You know, um, I mean, obviously you do lists on your phone or whatever, but I like writing things down. I'm quite old school. Yeah. Um, And I feel like there's a connection directly from my brain to the pen that I don't feel on a laptop or a phone. You know? Yeah. Yeah, but this got the mole skins. little bit of kit. That looks brilliant. It was about oh. a fiver on Amazon and it is yeah. brilliant. If also very handy if you're a stand-up comedian and you're doing new material, write your set list on it, put it on your wrist. Nobody can see you're looking at your set list. Yeah. <laughs> on the list, on our agenda is uh, talk about Edinburgh. You've got, you got, what are you doing next? Um, so I'm doing um, the Edinburgh Fringe this year, which would be my first time in four years. Last time I went up was 2018. Mm. Uh, because I planned to go in 2020 and obviously that didn't happen and last year didn't happen. So, um, yeah, very exciting to uh, stroke scary to go back. So I'm sort of currently mm. doing work in progress shows and things, trying to get a show together. And then Is there a topic area that you're not really, I kind of, again, maybe this is an ADHD thing as well, but I kind of went, uh, the danger for me is if I go, right, I'm going to write a show about this. But then actually when I come to write it, something else is floating my boat in that moment. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to write myself into a corner. So I always give my show titles something fairly vague so that, uh, you know, when it comes to writing it, I can write about mm. what I'm actually interested in at that moment. I had a really weird tip for writer's block. It was really strange because it, it was basically to this, this writer said, what I do is I only ever write when I'm not blocked. <laughs> that, doesn't, that sort of doesn't make sense because like, I never sit down in front of a computer and start trying to write. What I do is wait until I want to write and then I'll go to the computer and write it down and start typing it out. And like, and it was like, then I'm not limited by that. But otherwise you're confronted by the page and like the title and the topic. And I'm, I'm going to think about this thing now. And it's like, actually, I can't. Some people can work like that. And again, you know, I quite often get invited onto podcasts talking about comedy. People love talking about the craft of comedy and how you write and how you, mm. and I always say, look, I can tell you how I do it. That doesn't make it the right way. And I know I do it very differently to someone, you know, we all have, you just got to do whatever works for you. And the minute you'd go, well, if they're doing it like that, I better try and do it like that. Then, you know, you're in all sorts of trouble. So I know some comedians who will treat their writing day like a work day. They will, you know, go to an office or, you know, a shared workspace or mm. their desk in their room, whatever, from nine till lunchtime. Or have, the side offices. Or the side, like I, you know, but it just mm. never worked for me to do. And all that would happen is I would sit at, a blank screen or with a blank notepad and that frustration would come in and that feeling of failure 
And then once you start, once that voice starts in my head, the who, and, and you know, it's a loud voice in my head, the who the hell do you think you are voice, the one go, oh, you think you're a comedian, do you? Oh, you think you can mm. do this, do you? You know, that never goes away. Um, and so when you're just confronted with a blank page, of course that voice is going, who do you think you are? Mm. You think you're going to go on telly? I do stand up. It's very silent, isn't it? So. You can't write under the, when that voice is shouting in your ear. You can't be creative. So the only, what I do, I'm a compulsive note taker. So I also know that I forget things, you know, hence the to-do list or whatever. So if I do think of something funny, I have to write it down instantly. Um, I in the house where I used to live, I don't have it here, but um, I used to have those soap crayons in the shower because I'd often have ideas in the shower. And by the time I got out and dried myself off, I'd forgotten it, you know, it gone. Yeah. So I'd write them on the tiles, just like keywords, and then come back in and go, right, what was the... That's brilliant. Um, and similarly, like when I'm driving, so I think... For me, and again, probably an ADHD thing, who knows? But that voice in my head that berates me all the time has lived with me for 45 years. It's very hard to shut it up, you know, and I've done lots of things to try and reframe it and shut it up and stuff, but it's there. So I have to acknowledge it's there. So for me, I can only write when that, it's like that toddler in my head, I have to wear out or keep busy. So if I'm driving, it's like my brain is concentrating on driving and that allows the creative part of my brain to do its own thing without interruption. So I would say most of the ideas I have come when I'm driving or if I'm in the shower or if I'm doing something else, if I'm, um, you know, sitting at a sewing machine or whatever. So I have to make sure I've always got means to write down when it comes. So in the car, I use Mm. Siri all the time to go, Siri, take a note write this down so I don't forget it. And so then when I do come to go, right, I need to work out, write a new show. I've got reams and reams of ideas that are starting points that I can then work on. So I'm never sat with a blank page. I'm never sat going, Oh God, what am I going to write about? It's drawn all around the house. It's just, yeah, exactly. It's posted. Oh, my post-it. Let me show. Hang on. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I'm in my little office now. Can you see the amount of post-it notes I've got on my wall? Yeah. That's just every time I think of something, it just goes on a post-it note up there quickly. So I don't forget it. Um, just, yeah, just has to get out of my brain and into somewhere visual. So then it's registered and then I can, yeah, move on to the next thing in my brain. We're buying waterproof crowns for the bathroom. Yeah, it's great. I think that would be really helpful for you, for Ben. That's our son. Everybody, mm. I think. Shower thoughts, but get them yeah. down. Get them down so they're not bothering you later, you know, because there's nothing worse than knowing you've had a good idea and not remembering what it was. We'll get carried away by the men in white coats, so. <laughs> I was in the shower the other day trying to think up of like high-powered laser missile defense system for the country. I was Don't like, you oh, what if you put it? And I was like, yeah, that, and then that could be connected that way. And I was like, actually, that's quite feasible. We are definitely um, the living embodiment of of that meme. You know, the, where there's like the man and woman lying in bed and the woman's like, I bet he's thinking about other women and he's thinking of something completely, totally bizarre. <laughs> That, I think that was created for us. I really oh, do. Oh, God. Oh, Kev, your, your mind is a glorious mystery to me. Don't ever change. <laughs> if, I, if I ever went, oh, I know what Kev's thinking, I'd be really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll have like Neuralink things and we'll be able to see in each other's thoughts. I, I mean, I, we've had lovely conversations with Kevin explaining things like the singularity to me or um, what's the what's the thing that begins with them that I can never remember what the word is? The, mem- the memetic stuff. Yeah, yeah. And me sitting there smiling going, oh, okay. And in my head going, I do not know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really trying and it's just not... <laughs> 
But I love that you see things that way. I love that you see things in a way that I just can't see, you know, and that is a perfect illustration about how, you know. Russia, there's a virus going on. Like it's not, the, this war is not a war, a kinetic war. It is a war of stories. And mm. at the moment in Russia, there's people putting Zs on their T-shirts because they, because that story of, of we are proud of the Russian nation has the, the brainwashing works and it's scary. And, you know, the way to defeat these things is not kinetically. It mm. is to, to get into that story is to defeat that virus, just mm. to, to defeat that story virus and find some way to, to, to counter it so that people don't, Otherwise, you end up like they'll end up like Millwall. They'll be like, no one, no one, no one likes us, and we don't care. And the, and yeah. the pride will be about being isolated and being, yeah. you know, us against the world. That's populism, isn't it? That's you know, to just to 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 foster national pride with no reason for it is populism, right? Is to um, make people believe that they don't need a reason for their pride, or they don't need a. Do you know what I mean? Like an, uh, any re- you can have any reason for pride. Yeah. If you're it's not just them. Like it's the, because there's always the flip. I find with a story, there's always the flip story is everyone mm. who prides themselves on not being that thing. And then the mm. two of them working in tandem essentially to, to propagate through the world. Your comment about populism and kind of obviously we're at a point in history. Um, I know you're a, a Cold War enthusiast mm. or very interested in kind of Cold War history and mm. um, obviously do host a history podcast and it'd be interesting to know a bit more about that as well. Yeah, and do you know yeah. any nuclear bunkers just in case? I know a lot of nuclear bunkers. <laughs> yeah. I'm not telling you buggers where they are. No. It's, it's so funny because, you know, I, I do have this Cold War history interest, should we say. There's lots of reasons why I find it fascinating, but um, one of the ways that manifests is these nuclear bunkers and it all really started with the one in Crystal Palace, right? In Pear Tree mm. House in Crystal Palace. Yeah, that's a really funny one because that's like a block of normal flats, isn't it? A block of flats is built in the 60s. They just whacked a bunker in the bottom. Why not? Um, mm. But, you know, I became really quite obsessed with these places. And, you know, and I mean, this podcast will be six hours long if I get down that road. But um, it is funny that, you know, in the recent weeks, people have gone, oh, you know where the bunkers are. It's like, no, I know where the Cold War bunkers are. I don't know where the current bunker, you know, I know where mm. the ones that are full of asbestos and wouldn't keep out a nuclear blast in a million years are. I know where those are, <laughs> but they're not going to help anybody, right? They are yeah. really old and not fit for purpose. So don't follow me, basically. Don't follow where I'm running. Um, <laughs> I don't know any more than anyone else does. Can we just be like Indiana Jones and all get in our fridges? Isn't that what he does? Well, I, you know, every, pretty much every person who is an expert on these things I've spoken to, of which there are a lot, every person I've spoken to has gone, I wouldn't run to the bunker. I'd run towards ground zero because you don't want to be a survivor in that situation. You know. Well, that's cheerful. Yeah, yeah, much better to just, (laughs) yeah, exactly. But, you know, there's, um, there's, yeah. Oh, it's grim, isn't it? Let's not go too far down that road. But um, but it, but is it sort of the the politics of the Cold War? You know, seeing the echoes of that now, obviously, it's 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 all very um. You say it's interesting when you're living through this, or you know, you're living through. We're not. We're watching it. You know, and ordinary people are just pawns in this power game. You know, of I don't uh, think look, we should be so like disassociated from it. Is that no, no? Because we're not. I know it's really corny, but um. Like people pushing uh, an idea of reconciliation and and love and understanding of where other people come from is mm. how you solve these things. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, no, totally. And that, that takes individuals. That doesn't take like leaders. That takes people to get that and understand that and mm. make it happen. Like, yeah. Try try and understand these people. Try and understand why they're. I don't. I don't. I don't, don't mean appeasement. I just mm. mean like try and get. Well, understand their motivation. You can't be in their shoes. Yeah. yeah well, understand their motivation. Understand why why they're why they're pushed to be that way. You know, and how you know for for the Russian people and the Russian soldiers or whatever you, you know you're dealing with a a nation that's had a completely different narrative. So mm. we, I think, a lot of people go, well, how can they do this for people? How do they? it's like? Well, they haven't had your life experience. You know, they haven't had your experience of living in a democracy. They haven't had your experience of being fed the information you've been fed. And regardless of what mm. is the right information, wrong information, you know, it's not like there isn't propaganda everywhere all the time. They got a completely different moral framework as well. Like I was yeah. listening to Michael Malice uh, being interviewed by Lex Friedman. He's like a crypto guy it's a really, really good podcast but they're both of russian descent both live in the states now it michael malice was like i knew i was russian when i stayed at a friend's i had a friend staying at my house and when i came back home he said oh someone knocked on the door and i answered it and it was this this and this and he was like you opened the door to a to a stranger in my house he was <laughs> like he was like i would never do that ever i would never if someone if i was staying at someone's house and someone knocked at the door I would never open it. And he, and he turned to Lex, who's like his family from Ukraine. And he was like, no, I wouldn't do that either. And he was like, but Americans would, because their, mm. their natural instinct is that uh, strangers are people that you, that you need to get to know and to understand. But the, the Russian soul is, they're not us. Don't know them. Don't like them. <laughs> and it's not it's not negative like it's but it's like and then when yeah. people are close to you so that kind of like ethno-nationalism where it's like well these are my people mm. is really strong and like that's unbreakable yeah and and we i think we we really want to be in denial of that like we we really fight against we go oh you can't generalize you can't do this you can't you go but there is such thing i think as cultural personality there is because people in a country will have a shared experience to a certain extent and obviously as in, they also have their individual experiences within that but the media you're exposed to the uh, stories you're exposed to the history you're exposed to what you're taught in school that all comes from above right that all comes mm. from a government so your personality whether you like it or not is part informed by that by your nationhood and um, by denying that then like you say we're not seeing where these people are coming from then how do you counteract something how do you you mm. know when you're refusing to make that understanding they literally think differently like Ooh. it's um supposedly um people in weird countries which is i think western educated independent rich and democratic or something it's basically okay, like i thought broad, you were broad, making broad, some horrible no it's, like, um, personal statement about i see what you mean no, it's an no, acronym. weird <laughs> yeah, weird actually is like basically western western culture like australian mm. but you know so not ge mm. geographically western but like west western culture is considered to be weird, um, mm. and it, uh, and the idea is that they they did these surveys about a man who takes a chicken uh, from the market, like dead, and then takes it back to his house and has sex with it, and then cooks it and eats it. And they they ask people how you feel about that story in different countries, and basically in the weird countries in Western countries, the attitude is, well, that's disgusting, but it's his house. Is his chicken? What he does with it? It's up to him. It's not for me, but but yeah, 
you you have fun, mate. Whatever. I I use a lemon personally. You know, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't, you don't need to like you're you're an independent human. But apparently, that story, that question of how do you feel about that to everyone who's not Western, which is most of the world, is actually you represent the rest of society as well, and you represent mm. humanity, and you represent your family, and there's much more sense of uh, le- less away from an individual and their mm. own responsibilities and their own morality. And so they have this sense of honor, honor amongst your or your group where you shouldn't do that, not, not because of it's, whether it's private or not, but because of how you fit into your wider society. You're a representative of the group. But we, you know, because we've had that sort of neoliberalist brainwashing, that opposite of the individual. Yeah, we are you weird. Know. We actually are and, weird. Yeah, and, and that, is something that I think most of the can't that individual above all else. And we're, you know, we're seeing here now the, how, where that leads you. Um, Mm. you know, that, that, uh, sort of cutting off from society and, and that, that we can all be individual and that not have a knock on effect on everyone's life. You know, we've seen that certainly through the pandemic, haven't we? Where people have, Mm. um, you know, so concerned about their own personal liberty, that they're not gone, well, actually, by my actions, what if I make this person's, you know, if if I'm not wearing a mask and I'm with somebody who has an underlying health condition, who is it my right to make that, you know, put them in a vulnerable... We, we've gone so over that it's hill. So individualistic, yeah. Um, that, you know, we, we've we st- stopped. And that's been one of the most depressing things, I think, about the pandemic is that can we stop thinking about our own personal thing for a minute and behave as a society through this, you know, because Mm. during a global public health crisis, what healthcare workers shouldn't be worrying about whether they're going to get physically attacked by people calling, you know, where's the greater good? Where's the, we just behaved more like a society. And obviously, you know, there are questions of freedom that come into that because then you do have situations where, you know, who who really knows on the ground in China, say, how they've dealt with, you know, they've adopted a zero COVID policy, which you might think, well, that's the way to do mm. it. But actually, well, how many freedoms were curtailed there, like properly curtailed, not having to wear a mask in a supermarket. I'm sorry, it's not your freedom being curtailed. Mm. Um, you know, being locked up in prison without trial is your freedom being curtailed for what, mm. you, you know, so there's always... Yeah. You know, is there a happy medium between those two things, between a totalitarian society and a completely individualistic society? And I think there was maybe five minutes a while ago where in the West we thought we had that. And then, uh, you know, things mm. always move to extremes. And yeah, yeah, that's where we find ourselves. But then if you're not seeing yourself as an individual, as your identity, then you see your identity as a group, uh, as mm. a group identity, which obviously comes with its own problems. That's where that ethno nationalist sort of mentality is you're not exactly. attacking you're not attacking Russia you're attacking me and my beliefs yeah, and yeah. My, my my society's beliefs yeah so, and that yeah. you know my society has these yeah yeah that sort of group yeah. think that kind of it's it's all who knows I don't know I'm but, glad I'm not the one in charge who has to decide well, no, that's <laughs> just, what I mean like you know you do feel like uh, like you lack personal agency to do anything about this but I do ooh. think it comes down to individuals understanding that we are we are actually fundamentally different people uh i mean that on on an individual level like, like mm. we talk about the adhd stuff like um people who are neurotypical and people who aren't the one of the solutions to that is for both sides to understand how the other one 
things mm. and to accept that. And it's really hard because you, you need a really incredible theory of mind because everyone yeah. bases their own thoughts on, on how they feel, both exactly. like, like their own moral frameworks, how mm. their brain feels, how, you know, mm. how, how much structure they want in their day, but how, how nationalistic they feel like they base that on their friendships and their groups and their upbringing. Human beings are judgmental creatures, right? And, and we judge people by our own way of thinking. So it happens all, and we all do it. There's no point going, oh, I never judge anyone. Yes, you do. You judge people constantly, whether that's right or not, whether you're, you know, we all do it, but we are, ju- you have to be aware that you're, ju- if you're not, it's that self-awareness of going, oh yeah, I've judged you by my parameters there. So that's mm. not necessarily fair, but most people aren't aware that they're doing that or won't acknowledge that they're doing that. People think, I think everyone thinks that they're fair all the time. And I think it's very important to acknowledge actually most of us aren't fair all the time. And also we have this biological imperative to look after our own to a certain mm. extent, right? This particularly your children or your family, there's a evolutionary biological imperative. Now, as human beings, we're able to override a lot of those imperatives a lot of the time, but sometimes we're not. And we don't like to acknowledge that, you know, there's a part of us that is mm. behaves like an animal. Right? Um, yeah. and, and when we see that on a, that on a really large scale, it's like you, you said, you, you know, that, um, we imprint ourselves onto other people. Well, why are they doing that? That's not how you'd behave if X, Y, Z happened. And you're like, well, that's not how you'd behave. Mm. It might be how that person behaves. You see it all the time with um, women in rape trials, particularly, you know, how often do you hear, well, why didn't she go to the police? Well, why did she still, you know, one of the, I remember reading about a case with a woman who um, they were like, well, she, he can't have raped her because she was still sending him text messages afterwards. You go, okay, you don't understand what it's like to be afraid of somebody. Okay. Like if somebody is, if you're afraid of someone in a relationship, you might still send them text messages, even though they're abusing you because you're trying to appease them, right? You're trying to stop them hurting you. And sometimes that might mean you're nice to your abuser. You know, Mm. that is not a sign that you aren't being abused yet, but we put our own print on the way we read that you go, well, if somebody did that to me, I wouldn't text them the next day. You go, well, nobody is doing that to you. You don't know what you do. And also, you know, you're not her. Just we, we expect, we have an expectation that everybody will behave in a certain way all the time, despite the fact that all evidence for history <laughs> shows that's not the case and that people behave in ways we don't expect every day and all mm. the time. And, you know, that logic isn't necessarily part of decision-making in the moment when we're frightened, when we're scared, when we're, you know, a lot of the time it's denial. A lot of the time people behave in a certain way because they just don't want to accept that the thing that's happened to them has happened to them um, until later on, you know, and that's how you end up in a world where these cases of abuse or whatever so often go Mm. Unpunished because we impose what we think those women should have done. Usually women, sometimes men, I know, but you know, what they should have done in that moment. And therefore we make the victim take responsibility because they didn't behave in the way we think they should have. And now we're seeing that on a massive scale. Yeah. People are complicated. They are bloody complicated. Even in tech, they're complicated. All our problems are people problems, not tech ones. Yeah. That's in tech company. I want to talk about our company name. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. well, was... we got into your love of history and bunkers, nuclear bunkers. But we then <laughs> we started talking about Ukraine. Well, so I do a history podcast. It's called We Are History with me and the brilliant John O'Farrell, uh, who's a comedy writer. You might, um, he used to yep. be the lead writer on Spitting Image. He's just written um, Chicken Run 2, 
was him. Um, And he's just opened uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical on Broadway. He wrote that. Saw that. that. Um, So he's pretty cool. Uh, So we do a history podcast together. We're, We're sort of you know, comedians first, not historians, but we both really love reading about history. So our little strap line is we read the history books so you don't have to. Um, so we'll find a topic that interests us, we'll read all about it, and then we'll do a podcast about it. So it's quite an accessible way to learn things, you know, that you might not know. It's very good. We did a topic, uh, we did a, an episode called The History of Swearing, right? Because uh, I get called a potty mouth a lot because I'm, you know, I'm a common girl from Kent and what we lack in H's we make up for in F's, put it that way. Um, so I did... Uh, <laughs> I did an episode called The History of Swearing and during the research discovered that the word sod, S-A-R-D, is an old word meaning fuck. It's an old swear word. And so I obviously got in touch with you guys straight away and went... (laughs) Did you know, like, have you done this on purpose? Was this a, I know we didn't know, honest God, we didn't know. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't. So you're in there now with your sweatshirt on with, but it's good to know. written on it. And I'm quite offended, to be honest. (laughs) Well, we've since found out actually that um, you do get people who are really into like medieval reenactments and things like that. And they, and they do have things like t-shirts that say sard off. So it is. So, you know, you're quite right. Your research was incredibly accurate. It's definitely, it's definitely a thing. It definitely does mean fuck, but we had no idea. (laughs) So funny. It really made my day. And when I told you and you didn't know, and I was like, I'm so happy that I got to be the ones to tell them that their business names are swear words. Yeah. (laughs) I like the thought there's some like kind of archaeologist or historian in the future as well. Because you know how these things go around in cycles. So it might come back as like the main word again. And then they'll yeah, be looking yeah. back on history and they'll be like, what was that company doing? Yeah. How did they think that was a good marketing yeah. user event? Yeah, it's be like, <laughs> you know, you get you know they, you get those companies that just haven't thought their name through, like um central gas heating. And then when you see it written, <laughs> if you put the space in the wrong place, I won't go there, but you know oh, you, yeah, can, okay, you can work you, it yeah. out. <laughs> power, power Gen Italia. Yeah. That was the other one. Yeah, yeah, and um, the Mole Station was a nursery. I remember seeing that, but the website <laughs> oh for that was yeah, <laughs> Mole Station, oh, the Mole Station, <laughs> and Penn Island. That was another one, wasn't it? Where the website there was a stationery <laughs> shop called Penn Island. Yeah, <laughs> Penis Land. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll be up there. We'll be up there. Who was that the other day, though? Their name. This was like someone we knew, and they had uh, therapistclinic.co.uk. Oh no, and the rapist! Like, yeah, oh. yeah. easily done. Think about these things. Easily done. Think my heart goes things. out to the marketeers who have yeah. to. But yeah, I I love your podcast. I've listened to quite a few episodes now, and I definitely oh, say you. it's worth a listen. I particularly I liked learning about the Profumo affair. That was one of my favourites. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. I like the one. It's funny because we um, John is very broad in his history. Well, I'm very modern history. I'm sort of particularly 20th century history. I mean, if I had my way, every single episode would be about East Germany. So, you know, <laughs> it's mm. broadened my horizons quite a lot. So we recorded one yesterday about Richard III and I was a bit like, oh, boring. But actually reading it, you're like, oh, this is an amazing story. <laughs> like, you know, um, so it's been really, there's a lot of stories, I think, like Profumo, like um, we did one recently on Richard uh, Robert Maxwell. Lots of these sort of figures in history, uh, Clinton was another one, the Clinton Lewinsky thing. I'd like to. Where you go, oh, yeah, I know that story. I know that. And then you look at it and go, oh, I I actually didn't know that. I didn't know the details of that at all. Um, So that's where it's it's been really fun to sort of go, things that you think you know about, 
actually to get into a bit more detail and a bit more, but they're quite lighthearted. They're not, you know, hopefully not kind of boring going into too much detail. It's just a good overview of, it's a way of learning without knowing you're learning really. <laughs> but very much for adults. I wouldn't say I recommend yeah, I give it to your kids. giving it to no, kids. Yeah. I said, Mine actually, uh, the one on swearing uh, kind of came on <laughs> automatically in the car. And I think you were actually just listing <laughs> swears. Um, and our children were like, oh, mommy, what's this? Oh, no, you they were notes. So yes. When we did talk about Edinburgh, you didn't mm. actually, uh, I think you started to talk about you the title and didn't actually plug it or say the title. So I'm so bad at this whole marketing, but you can tell I've not worked in marketing. Can't you? I'm so bad at it. Oh yeah, you probably want the show. The show, show title is called Hot Mess, Love um, which is, you know, what I am. And uh, it is uh, on every day during the end of a fringe at 7.15-ish, I want to say. Uh, but it's at the it's at the cabaret bar in the Pleasance Courtyard. Tickets are on sale on the edfringe.com website. Um, so I better finish writing it. And then from, so that'll be throughout August. And then from the autumn, it has, I haven't got the dates confirmed yet, but I will be going on tour autumn and spring next year. So um, people can, if they want to know my tour dates, they can sign up to my website, which is just angelabarnescomedy.co.uk. There's a mail, what's the word I want? Mailing list button you can sign up to. I don't, like I send out, literally only when I'm going on tour. Um, so I don't spam it. It's if I've got tickets to sell, I'll send a message out, but it's not like you're not going to get weekly emails from me telling you what I've had for dinner or anything. Don't worry about that. Um, but if you want to know when the tickets are on sale, sign up to that. Um, or follow me on Twitter at Angela Barnes or Instagram. Um, yeah, if you want to come along, please come along. I should be be, more so please come along. (laughs) Yeah. You guys come along, obviously. Yeah. Cool. So on March the 31st, uh, Angela will be at the Pears building at the University of Kent, which is the home of the new Kent and Medway Medical School. Um, And that's a quiz that we are holding to raise some money for that school. So thank you very much, Angela, for uh, agreeing to help out. I feel like we cornered you into it a little bit. No, total pleasure. Uh, It's all lined up. You're a mate of ours. You used to be a nurse, right? Yep. Yep. You're from Maidstone. I'm a Kent Kent. girl and I love a quiz. And you love a quiz. It was the obvious ask. It was the obvious thing. Totally up for it. Um, And yeah, I love a quiz. So yeah, it's going to be fun. But, you know, if anyone's coming, I do not abide cheating. So I'll be watching you all. You know, (laughs) you learned that about me. You can, you know, fair play all round. Then we'll have fun. You have to have fun. It has to be by the rules. Yeah. we have one question that we always finish with. Um, okay. Which is, what is the one thing you would like our listeners to know? I want the listeners to know that being neurodivergent, like autism, ADHD, whatever it is, there's a, a strand of people saying that it's a superpower. Um, and I get why people say that because you want to frame it as something positive rather than a disorder. And you want to frame it like actually look at these amazing people, what they've achieved and they've got neurodivergences. And I totally understand why you'd say that to your kids and everything. But I really like to move away from that being the main thing, like going, oh, having an, because what I'm afraid will happen is you say to people having autism is a superpower. Look at these famous people that have autism then basically what you've done is gone. So if you don't get famous with your autism, you're a failure at it, (laughs) you know, Mm. just giving people something else um, to fail at. So let's stop calling uh, neurodivergence a superpower and let's just call it what it is. Your brain's just structured differently and you're going to adapt to the world and it won't hold, it shouldn't hold you back from being successful. 
but let's not give people expectations that they need to be successful. That's a good one. Well, maybe we could all have superpowers, but then there some our superpowers are always a bit shit. Like, yeah, I feel like we've all got a superpower, but it's something. This is something mundane. <laughs> it's exactly, and 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 I think that's a great thing. But I think what we do is, you know, there are books you can buy on websites, whatever, and go. This person has, and I've had it. You know, yeah, people yeah. said it to me. Have gone. Um, I've had it said to me by a psychiatrist. Well, well, I've had yeah, I've had it said to me by a psychiatrist. Superpower, but I know what he meant, and he is, he's right. It's actually for me personally. It's bit, having a, a unusual brain has helped mm. me in my life and I suspect mm. it has with you but I get, it has, I get what but you're saying it's also because of years of misdiagnosis it's also been hugely traumatic and I don't mm. want to um, negate how hard it's been by telling people that my life's been brilliant and because I'm ADHD when the truth is it's been really bloody hard because I've been ADHD and um, I think there's a, a real danger as well of because I know I, I've had people say to me um, you know my daughter has ADHD and I pointed to you and, and you know it's really good that she could see someone doing really well and I go well hang on a minute you know a where I'm at now is the best place I've ever been in my life but it has not always been like this you know and this wasn't an easy road and b let's not make that girl feel that unless she's on telly she's mm. failed do you know what I mean that now mm. I find I have the same sort of issues really with the whole body positivity movement which I think has the most noble aims right to embrace different body shapes, sizes, whatever, that they're all beautiful and whatever. And the aims of that are, are incredible. However, what the reality of body positivity has done for lots of us is given us something else to fail at. Because when I feel dissatisfied with my body or that I don't love my body, I failed at being a good feminist. I failed at being body positive. So what you've actually done for a lot of women is just given them something else to be rubbish at because not everyone can be like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So yeah. lots of these things have such noble aims but in reality, what you're doing is giving people a lot more things to fail at mm. uh, to people who already feel like they're failing Um, go, Oh, great. Now I've got, you know, ADHD and I'm not famous. Great. I haven't even done ADHD. Right. I haven't even made a superpower. All it's done for me is been difficult. Mm. You know, let's not negate experiences that are difficult. It's not no. all, not all good. Uh, my superpower is becoming comfortable with my mediocrity. That's nice. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> if we could all just be comfortable with our mediocrity, we'd all be happier. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been lovely. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We thoroughly enjoyed having Angela on this episode and hope you were able to learn a bit about ADHD and the world of a comedian. Follow Angela on Twitter at Angela Barnes. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week.